Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with each of you here uh, as we continue our series through the book of Mark. And for those of you that haven't been here with us uh, or in a while or are visiting with us, we've been breaking down different sections of the book of of Mark and primarily studying Jesus' interactions with the people of Israel, the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Um, and then also kind of seeing his miraculous works, his teachings, and also some of his parables This morning, we're going to see um, a story about Jesus being rejected by those closest to him and those that even perhaps know him best. And yet we're going to see that um, this is kind of showing something a little bigger that's indicative of the life of Jesus, that he was rejected for the sake of the world. Uh, One thing that I learned early in uh, parenting toddlers is this idea of, uh, of picking your battles, right? It's this whole idea that uh, as a child grows up and then they're kind of starting to learn to flex their autonomy and become a person, and yet they have like zero, uh, or maybe a little bit of motor skills, but really not a lot. You know, they can't really do anything, but they're trying and they're trying to flex that autonomy and stuff. So um, it's not easy. So uh, picking our battles, right? I've let Lila leave the house with two different pairs of shoes on. Uh, didn't choose to fight that battle, Right? But when she tries to take her clothes off in public because she get ice cream on her dress, I, I fight that one, right? She, she can't do that. There was this time um, in quarantine when uh, Lila, or sorry, Andrea, my wife, was done nursing Jack, and she could put Lila down again, that Lila got stuck on mommy books. And it was this idea that the only person that was allowed to put Lila down was Andrea. So mommy books, over and over and over, always. We would start heading upstairs for nap or bedtime, and all I would hear is mommy books, mommy books, mommy books. And if we tried in any way for me to do daddy books or to put her down, instant fit, right? And it was just cataclysmic how awful she would go crazy. And, you know, we were so tired, and it was quarantine and all those things, that we just decided not to pick this battle. We were just like... Fine, like Andrea will do mommy books, I'll put Jack down just for the foreseeable future. Well, a couple of times we tried for me to, you know, put her down and break this. And every time, like I said, cataclysmic fits. And, and I'll be honest, it hurt a little bit, right? Like just a little bit. Like I felt a little rejected. I know it was the territorial thing. Jack is new and, and, and Lila wanted to have mommy time because there was a new baby in the house that she was fighting attention for. All those things I knew intellectually. And yet I still felt a little hurt by it, right? This was my girl. This is like my pride and joy. And she wants nothing to do with me when she's going to bed. That rejection stung, I think, the most because... Um, of the source, right? But the truth is, we all um, experience rejection in life, don't we? And often, the rejection that hurts the worst is from those that are closest to us. Maybe that we love the most or that know us best. And all of us have experienced rejection in, in different ways. Job applications, teams or clubs that we didn't make or qualify for, schools that we applied to that shut us down, our life or work being ignored or dismissed by our bosses. But it definitely is heightened when it's done by those close to us. Some of you are here this morning and you felt rejected by your family members. Some of you are estranged from your siblings or, or your mothers or fathers or, or maybe even from your children. 
the sting of that rejection hits quite differently. So some of you are here this morning and you've experienced true rejection from your spouse or from your close friends or those in your community or, or that you thought you could trust. And much of the hurt and trauma in our lives often is chalked up to being rejected by someone that we trusted or that we loved or, or that knew us best. One thing that I've loved about walking through the book of Mark is how often Mark highlights the humanity of Jesus, right? We talk often about God becoming man, but, but we typically do it from the idea that God became man. We, we focus more on his divinity. But when you walk through the gospel, any of the gospels, it forces you to see the humanity of Jesus. We've seen him be tired. We've seen him experience real emotions. We've seen him be upset all in just these first six chapters, And in this passage, we see Jesus experience something so truly human. It's rejection. You know, those those homecoming videos that you see online of um, military people coming home from from being deployed and, and they're surprising their kids at a basketball game or something. They're so deeply emotional, I can't watch them. Andrea will send them to me. I'm like, no, I, like, I can't do it. Like, it's too much. Like, I'm going to feel too much from this, and I'm going to be weeping in the corner. I can't do it. Those are so beautiful, and you would expect, I think, when Jesus goes home after doing ministry, that that's the type of reception that he would experience. His family, his friends being so excited to see him. But that's not what happened, right? And we just read it. And in some way, this shouldn't surprise us. Mark has laid a framework for this because we've seen his disciples already question him, not understand who he was. His own family in chapter 3 thought he was crazy at best and possessed at worst. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, the people that knew the scriptures the best, were already hostile towards him and his message. So Mark has been laying this groundwork for us for chapters and chapters. And he's done it purposely, right? He wants to show us where this story is going. This passage, perhaps more than any, has the shadow of the cross draping over it like an incoming storm. Mark is directing us towards the cross where God's own people will yell, crucify him. He's directing us towards the cross where God's own son will hang beaten and bruised by his chosen people. The shadow of the cross hangs over the story where his hometown and family rejects him because on the cross, Jesus experienced ultimate rejection as our sins were placed on his shoulder, leading him to cry out, Father, why have you forsaken me? But that which is uh, dark is also hopeful for us, right? Jesus was rejected for my sake and for yours and for the sake of the world. He, he was rejected so that we could be ultimately accepted. He was rejected so we don't have to be. He was rejected so that he could claim us as his own. And any rejection we experience or face on this earth will always only be temporary in light of our eternal exception, uh, accept, acceptance. Wow, I can't speak. Eternal acceptance through the grace of Jesus Christ. He's claimed victory for us, even when we don't feel it. And we don't often believe that. And and I was looking at my heart this week, and I was like, why do we not believe this? 
And I think a, a big reason is because we have begun to see grace as ordinary. We know it too well. We've abused it too much. Jesus is too familiar for us at this point. We don't honor the extraordinary nature of his love and grace that he lavishes on us because we've become indifferent to it. To his sacrifice, to the rejection he faced. And this indifference becomes a weight on our back and on our shoulders without even realizing it. We'll get into more of that in a little bit. But this morning, we're going to try to correct that mistake. We're going to try to remember that Jesus Christ did choose to be rejected for our sake and for the sake of the world. And so because he did, we have to change the way we view the gospel. We're going to see this in two ways. First, we must accept the ordinary nature of the gospel. And second, we must honor the extraordinary nature of the gospel. So accept the ordinary and honor the extraordinary. So first... Jesus decides to pay his hometown a visit, right? And the passage doesn't say Nazareth, but we knew that's where Jesus grew up, so it's almost certainly where he goes. And verse 2 tells us, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. I want to stop us there because we can finally see a pattern that's establishing in Mark. Anytime Jesus goes to the synagogue, something goes down. So whenever Jesus goes to teach or confront people, something is happening. That's happened in this sermon series already. It's going to continue to happen through Mark. He's signaling to us something. So we need to pay attention to what's going on. And verse 2 continues. It says, many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us too? On one level, I love this reaction. They're like, this isn't, this isn't Jesus. This isn't the guy that we know, the kid that grew up here. Isn't he just the carpenter that fixes things, that builds stuff? How do you learn to teach like this? Maybe all that stuff we've heard about him, it really is him that did it. They were seeing a side of Jesus that they'd never seen before, experienced, or or expected. But it does kind of have this tint of something more insidious too, right? They weren't ready to see Jesus for who he was. They just knew him as the kid who grew up in the neighborhood. Regular, old, ordinary Jesus. This man speaking of power, who could this be? And I do think it's chilling in a way. They named him Mary's son rather than Joseph's son. And they did that purposefully. They did it to bring attention, perhaps to the rumors that were swirling around of his illegitimate birth. You almost always in that ancient Near East name a person by their father's, uh, by their father's name. But the fact that they highlighted Mary was to delegitimize him. And not only that, they wanted to discredit him by what he did, saying he's just a carpenter, right? They name that purposely to say he couldn't be who he says he is or what we think he is or what he could be. He's just a carpenter. Nothing more. And verse 3 really drives this point in by saying they took offense at him. We all expect people to be something, right? People uh, of certain classes, cultures, jobs, we expect them to act a certain way according to who we think they are or what their status is or their station is. 
And this is exactly what they said with Jesus. He, he was a very ordinary person from an ordinary town working an ordinary job. So their expectations of him didn't match up to the reality that they experienced. So they dismissed him. There's this idea of um, a veil of humanity. That's a good way to describe what Jesus was when he walked on earth. He had the he was fully God, we know that, but he had a veil over him that was his humanity. And that's what they expected. They expected him to be nothing more than that veil. And because of this, they rejected him. Instead of taking their astonishment and celebrating him, they criticized him. Instead of learning from him, they dismissed him. Instead of worshiping him, they discredited him. Ordinary Jesus. We know him, but we don't want him. Church, I worry we will do this same thing. I fear that Jesus becomes ordinary to us. And because of that, regardless of whether we would say we would or not, whether we realize in our heart we're doing it or not, we reject him. The ordinary nature of the gospel is a reality. And I don't want us to hear that in a pejorative way. In a lot of ways, the gospel is ordinary, and that's what makes it beautiful, actually. Our problem is not that the gospel is ordinary in and of itself, but that we reject it because it is. The problem is not that it's ordinary, it's that we we become indifferent to it because it is. But the ordinary nature of the gospel means that it's true, more real than than the highs and lows of life that we are addicted to. It means it keeps us from falling into false emotionalism. Think about it. We are conditioned as a society today to always be looking for something to make us feel. We're conditioned to look at something to be outraged by, to, to stoke our anger. Or the opposite is also true, right? We're always looking for something to dull our anxiety and our stress. Either we want to feel and we're stoked by something, or we want to escape and be dulled. And we can fall into the trap, this trap with the gospel as well. What can I get from Jesus? What can I experience from this community that I'm in? What can I be angry about from my church or the church at large? Often what happens that leads us to jump from church to church or community to community or frustration to frustration because we want to be filled by something. But the gospel is not a slot machine of emotional fulfillment as if we could put a coin of faith into a machine and out comes this emotional feeling and contentment in every aspect of our life. The gospel is not something that gives us temporary fulfillment. It gives us eternal sustenance. The ordinary nature of the gospel portends to its eternal nature rather than a temporary one. That's why it's beautiful. But this is offensive to us at times too. Because the gospel teaches us that we're saved by the work of Christ on the cross. Not by what we could do. His good work, not ours. Unlike other religions, that we can have a true, intimate, and personal relationship with the God of the universe solely on what he has done and not how good we are. 
There's something exceedingly ordinary about that idea that can be offensive to us. And yet it is such a gift. We don't have to find nirvana or work on the five pillars of faith like Buddhism or Islam to be saved or even have a relationship with God. It's freely given by the power of him who died on the cross. We cannot let that ordinary nature of that beautiful message become powerless in our hearts and lives. And also, there's an ordinary nature to life in Christ too, right? The life that Christ calls us to lead is one of faithfulness in the everyday and the ordinary. We're we're actually to be countercultural in the desire to be emotionally filled up by every different thing that our culture throws at us to make us feel or to dull us by our vices or the sin of the world. No, our calling is to be faithful to Jesus Christ in our home, at work, with our friends, as we parent our children. Life in Christ doesn't promise us power, status, and wealth, but it promises us contentment. It promises joy. It promises to give us what we are actually looking for, what the actual desires of our heart is. So if there's an ordinary nature to life in Christ, there's also an ordinary nature to experience in Christ. Often we think about our sin or sanctification or our growth as a person. When when we think about it, we want these big sweeping changes, right? Magical fixes even. To quickly turn our circumstances upside down. to, To end our sin problem immediately. But the gospel changes in the everyday and the ordinary. Sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is a gradual process. The Holy Spirit sometimes does work in grand and amazing ways that blows us off our feet. But often he works and moves in the quiet places of our heart. In the the spots whispering to us that we need to change in. That we need to grow. And he moves there powerfully. My concern for us is that if we don't embrace this ordinary nature of the gospel, truly revel in it. Let it wash over us, we become indifferent, like I mentioned earlier. Have you ever been talking to someone um, and you're talking with them, you're conversing, and you see their eyes glaze over a little bit? Not even when you're telling a terrible story, right? You're just having normal conversation, and yet you know that they're not all there, right? They're thinking about something else. They're in another place, right? You know how that feels, Or even worse, their eyes keep glancing at their phone. The message they're communicating to to you in that moment is that what you are saying or your presence with them doesn't really matter. It's a form of rejection. That's indifference. And I worry we move towards Christ that way often. As he's speaking to us, as we are in relationship with him, it's like our eyes glaze over as if we're only half listening. Or our eyes are constantly glancing towards other things to fulfill us, to distract us. If we treat Christ that way, with that indifference, we do reject him. And he deserves a better response from us. The ordinary nature of the gospel requires a response of lifelong obedience, not indifference. Christ wants to meet us in the everyday, in the ordinary, in the long suffering, as the Bible calls it. And it's there, when we embrace that, 
that we will find what our heart is truly looking for, which is Christ himself. And that brings me to my second point. So Christ was rejected for the sake of the world. And because of this, we must accept the ordinary nature of the gospel. Now we're going to see that we must honor the extraordinary nature of the gospel. So the extraordinary nature. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So the phrase that Jesus uh, says here is used in Luke, and it's a proverb that was commonly used at that time, so he co-ops it, right? And he doubles down on the rejection that he felt from his hometown, but he spins it in a slightly different way. He accuses them of not honoring him. But that's pretty much on face value. The confusing phrase here is um, the first half of verse 5. It says he could do no mighty work there. Now, this isn't some kind of wacky translation. The Greek literally says that he could do no mighty work there. So this is a pretty literal translation. So Jesus, who even the winds and the waves obey from a simple command to be still, a chapter earlier, was not able, could do no, was not able to do any mighty works in his hometown. Why? Why? Well, the easiest answer is uh, not that he was literally unable to do it. But the lack of faith and unbelief from the people in the hometown prohibited from him doing it. So it seems often in the gospel that there's a, um, a tension between faith in Christ and him working miraculously. It's like they go hand in hand. But this is not always the case, even just the storm, right? The, the whole, I mean, when we preached on that a couple weeks ago, the whole part was about faith and the disciples lacking it. And yet Jesus still worked. So I do think there's a certain level of connection between faith in Christ and experiencing his work. I don't necessarily think that's what Mark is getting at here. I think the answer lies in the purpose of Jesus' mighty works. Why does he do them? The reason why Mark often told people, or, or so Jesus in Mark told people to keep secret the miracles he was doing was because the purpose of those miracles was not to gain fame. It wasn't to gain him a following. It wasn't even necessarily to make their hearts of stone turn soft, right? The reason Jesus performed extraordinarily throughout the book of Mark was to usher in the kingdom. It was to show a new way. It was to bring about restoration of all things, to begin to right all that sin had made wrong. And these people in, the home, in, the, in his hometown, they had no desire for that. They didn't want it. They rejected him, and they rejected that kingdom. So there was no reason for him to perform the miracles for them. He didn't need to prove himself to them. He didn't, try to, he didn't need to try and legitimize himself to them or, or even perform miracles for them because they didn't, they didn't want it. They saw him and the message and the kingdom he was bringing, and they chose to reject it. So he did no work for them. The gospel of the kingdom is more extraordinary than simple tricks for people who are unwilling to receive him and reject him. Lane says it this way, unbelief excluded the people of Nazareth from the dynamic disclosure of God's grace. It excluded them from the dynamic disclosure of God's grace. And yet, those that did want it, that wanted his kingdom, 
he still went, so those closest to him he moved away from, and the people on the outskirts, the fringes of society, he went to them, and he laid hands on them, and he still healed them because they needed the kingdom. They needed him. Here's the mistake that Jesus' family and hometown made. They rejected the person of the kingdom, and they missed out on the nature of the kingdom because of it. They rejected Jesus, and in doing so, they missed out on how extraordinary his kingdom truly is and was. They dismissed him and missed out on the extraordinary work of the gospel. So the question before us this morning that, that we've probably all been building towards and thinking about, how do we not do this? And I think it's right there in the passage. We honor Christ. We give him the glory and honor he deserves. This is so simple and yet so difficult. The gospel of Jesus Christ is power because it has the power to change our hearts. It is the power to save our lives. It's the power to bring the rest to our souls that we need. It has the power to set us free from the sin that entangles us. It is extraordinary. But the only way we experience it is to honor Christ. And we get in our own way, I get in my own way, so often from experiencing this power. I distrust that the Spirit is actually leading me in the way that it seems He is. Or or we think everyone else deserves grace, and yet we don't think that grace applies to ourselves, right? Or we think the things that we are feeling must originate in our own hearts and minds, not that the Spirit is moving in power. We get in our own way constantly. But the gospel is extraordinary. The Spirit does lead us. Listen to His voice. How do you do that? Ascribe honor to Jesus in your decision making. Grace is yours in Christ Jesus, regardless of what you have done, what you have said, or what you think. It's yours because it's been won for you, not on something you've done, but what on He did. And if you feel moved by the Spirit during worship or your quiet time or the events in the happen in your life, trust that it's the Spirit moving and don't distrust yourself. Honor Christ with everything you have and you'll experience the gospel powerfully. It's so simple and yet we forget it so often. Keller puts it this way. If we lose the wonder of who he is and what he's done, we won't see his power in our lives. If he has become routine taken for granted, if your gratitude and amazement for his person work has worn off, you cannot expect him to work. This is probably the same thing that David calls in Psalm 51, the joy of your salvation. Don't lose it. Church, this morning we have the opportunity to experience the extraordinary nature of Jesus Christ and his work. So give him the honor and experience it. Let us stand in awe of him and then stand in awe of the extraordinary nature of his work. And in doing so, we embrace him rather than reject him. So a few weeks ago, um, Andre and I had had enough. We decided that it was time for mommy book stand. So we only did daddy books uh, every day for weeks. And it took about a week that every single time, tears, meltdowns, some banging and slamming of things. Not by me, but by her, obviously. 
And we did get through it. Uh, the other day, Lila, before we went upstairs, asked for daddy books. She asked for it. And her rejection, even small, stung for months. But man, the joy of her acceptance and love, whew, it overshadowed those months completely. Here's the deal. I'm so incredibly enamored with her, so committed to her, that no amount of rejection from her is going to keep me away from her. I'm so deeply committed to her. It's unbelievable. I don't even try. It just is who I am. But this is true about our Heavenly Father as well. No matter how often we reject Him, don't honor Him, the amount of times we do treat Him indifferently or get tired of the ordinary nature of the gospel or discredit its extraordinary nature, He still loves us. He still lavishes His grace on us. He still died for us. So even in our unbelief, Christ still died for us. Even in our indifference, Christ still died for us. Even in our rejection, Christ chose to be rejected for our sake. This is the gospel that even when we reject Him, He became rejection for us still so that we might be saved. That is grace for us. That is love. That is commitment. And that is no matter how poorly we do this, Christ loves you and died for you. Church, as we move into the world, let that be our propulsive force. Let that be our goal. Let that be our kingdom mindset. Is that the grace and love of Jesus Christ is still true for us, even in our objection of him. What a God we serve. We pray with me, Father. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for loving us despite our sin and our rejection of you. Thank you that your gospel was both ordinary and extraordinary. And Father, let us be your kingdom people this week as we go into our work, into our homes, into school. God, go before us, lavishing your love and grace on us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.